Uh, I'm Robert, and uh, it's uh, good to see you guys here. This is the last of our uh, current series of midweek fellowships on uh, cults and other religions. So on the, the slide that I may have posted on the website at one point or another, it said that it was ending November 19th, and uh, today is the 12th. And this is the last day, not the 19th, so just keep that in mind. Uh, if you show up next Wednesday night, you might find something interesting, but it won't be this. So uh, <clears throat> tonight we're talking about atheism and agnosticism, um, which will be, uh, it's been a real challenge trying to condense a lot of things into one talk, I guess. Um, and you would think it would be very easy because you would think that the main ideas of atheism and agnosticism are pretty easy to summarize, and they are. But, but what comes with that very simple foundational truth, I suppose, for the folks who adhere to it, uh, it, it comes with a whole variety of ways to adapt that and live according to that. Uh, if you start by saying there is no God, or I don't know if there's a God, you can really take that any direction you want. And so uh, tonight we'll be talking about a lot of the different directions that come from that. Before we do that, before we go any further, I did want to give away two books uh, in particular. The first one is a book on worldview by a guy named James Anderson, who I think I actually took an online class from this guy through RTS, and uh, it was really interesting. It had nothing to do with this, but he was uh, a really well-spoken guy. Anyway, this book is called What's Your Worldview? An Interactive Approach to Life's Big Questions. I haven't read it, but I think it's good. So if you uh, are interested in a copy, throw your hand up. I saw Elaine, yeah. Um, awesome. Thanks, Brad. I'll meet you halfway. And then another book that I have read and really do like from experience, not just from the recommendations of Wayne Sheely, is written by Tim Keller. It's called The Reason for God. Uh, this is a great resource to have on hand with apologetic questions for sure, but even for yourself, just to reinforce a lot of the questions that you probably even have in your own heart, but don't really know how to answer them sometimes. So this is a really good one. Tim Keller has written a lot of great books, and he actually is uh, pretty well-versed on a lot of things of this regard. So Emily, did you throw your hand up? Was that you? Yeah. Sorry, people. Uh, All right. Some of the things we'll talk about tonight in particular, I've uh, plagiarized is a strong word. I've uh, borrowed uh, with credit from Tim Keller. And so uh, if you were to find that book in our resource room, which you can, you'll find a lot of the same sort of ideas. But he has some really good points in there, a ways to just think biblically uh, and also reasonably uh, with people who, uh, who, who do not think um, Christianity is valid, or that our God is the one true God, um, and so forth. So um, let me start out by reading uh, a story that I stumbled across on the internet. Uh, If you're familiar with Tim Challies, he's a blogger and a a really prolific blogger, actually. He's written a few books, too, I think. But he he posted this earlier this week, actually, and I thought it was really uh, appropriate. It's a little story, and and I'll just read it to you the way he wrote it. My neighbor is a public nuisance. It's official, actually. She has been declared a nuisance, which means the police are no longer obligated to respond to her phone calls, and she calls them a lot. 
I first encountered Elizabeth a few years ago when I saw her propped up on crutches trying to sweep several centimeters of snow off her very long driveway. I grabbed a shovel, cleared off her drive, and have been doing it ever since. She's a fascinating woman who has lived in this neighborhood since before I was even born. She is well advanced in years and full of fascinating stories. But sadly, she is losing her grip on reality. Through a long history of belligerent behavior and a shorter history of paranoia, she has alienated herself from every other neighbor. She has a reputation in this neighborhood and is the butt of many jokes. Most people just now, uh, they just know to keep her at a distance. Elizabeth recently called me over to her home to have me replace a light bulb in her basement. While, she, while I was there sorting through a box of many, many long dead light bulbs, she explained her most recent crisis. She had awoken from a nap just a few minutes earlier to find that someone had snuck into her house and varnished half of her coffee table while she slept. She was beside herself with concern and was planning to call the police. I looked around and saw every evidence that she had varnished half of her table herself, taken a nap, and upon awaking, forgotten that she had ever begun. But I couldn't exactly tell her that, could I? She called the police, who opted not to respond. This is just the most recent in a long series of similar incidents. Last year, she accused local politicians of sneaking into her carport and dumping oil underneath her very old car as some kind of retaliation. She was upset and perplexed that the police didn't believe her and refused to write up a report. Before that, she accused local garden center workers of prowling her garden at night, splitting her hostas, and carrying away half of each plant. And before that, she was convinced that a mayor had sent a team to break into her house and spray her furniture with a clear coat. Again, the police did not buy her story. Our neighbors find this all hilarious, but I find it sad. It's sad to see her descending into paranoia and living on the edge of reality. She lives on her own, her sons have little to do with her, and she is steadily growing worse. But despite it all, she maintains her independence and walks to the grocery store just about every day, summer or winter, rain or snow. She tells me she's a medical test case who has refused every medication doctors have offered her, and she just keeps going. Every Halloween, she hands out grapes and bananas to the few children who will brave her driveway. Every Christmas, she brings my kids a little gift of hot chocolate. Every summer, she leaves her garden wild and untouched and considers it her pride and joy. And almost every week, she finds another reason to call the police or to write out another letter to the local newspaper. As eccentric as she is, I do consider it a privilege to know her. I have another neighbor who is quite a lot younger than Elizabeth. He is advanced and successful in his career. He makes lots of money and is quickly climbing the corporate ladder. He drives a nice car and speaks highly of himself and his accomplishments. He engages in banter with all the neighbors except Elizabeth and is well-known, well-liked, and much admired. But he is also proudly atheistic, boldly denying the very existence of God. Of these two neighbors, which is more to be pitied? Which of, the two which of the two lives under the greater delusion? Is it the neighbor who can't remember that she began to varnish her coffee table? Or the neighbor who denies the very existence of his creator? The Bible tells us, the fool says in his heart there is no God. 
Romans 1 insists what can be known about God is plain to all because God has shown it to them. One of my neighbors is succumbing to age and infirmity and living in a sad fantasy. The other is willfully blinding himself to the most obvious reality in the world, that he and all that he sees and experiences have been made and formed by the Creator. He, by far, is most to be pitied because he, by far, is in the most perilous condition. It's a long story, but I, I like how he illustrates that point. Um, when we talk about atheism, when we talk about agnosticism, uh, one, we're talking about very real people, um, very really, truly created in the image of God, who refuse to acknowledge that. Whether through what they think is ignorance or reasonable skepticism um, or something else, they, they refuse to acknowledge the Creator who is very obviously present in this world and in history. Um, so that's what we're talking about tonight, is, is not, not something that is, uh, at its heart, antagonistic, and they're just trying to make me mad about what I believe this. And we're talking about people who uh, have lost touch with reality in the very deepest sense of the word. Um, and so I think it, it requires us to have some sense of compassion and, uh, and love and understanding. And also to arm ourselves with, uh, with truth um, from God's Word, certainly. Um, truth from uh, the common grace that God gives us through people who think and, and, uh, and, and raise the questions and also raise the answers. Um, so that's, that's where we're going tonight. That's what we're, what we're talking about. Um, so... Like I said, when I began to uh, look, into, look into how to approach this subject, how to talk about this, uh, atheism, agnosticism, all these things, um, it, it really quickly became difficult to pinpoint, what, what do I talk about exactly? Um, I, I like the outline Wayne has used in the past weeks of discussing various religions and, uh, and belief systems. And so I'm going to take that same thing, and, and some of the answers to some of these questions will become very straightforward and, and maybe a little less, um, less work to elaborate on. Um, so I'm going to just basically take what Wayne has given us and, and kind of work in uh, uh, discussion about atheism uh, and agnosticism. So to start with, atheism, it, it does have one main point, one main tenet, if you will, uh, which is to say that no divine beings exist. Um, agnosticism, the reason we're also talking about that tonight too, is because on the same lines, um, the agnostic would say, I- I'm not really sure if a divine being or any divine beings exist, but I'm going to lean and say probably not. But I acknowledge that I can't prove that one way or another. Um, from this point, you can, you can branch into all sorts of ideologies and principles which have diverged from that. Um, some under the heading of atheism, some under the heading of agnosticism, some under uh, a heading of, of irreligion or non-belief. Um, and unlike systematic religions like Hinduism or Islam, atheism it doesn't have sacred text to draw from or, or any other external underlying principles that can make it easily categorized um, beyond the main idea of 
the absence of a divine being. So I guess the, the first question then that we've been asking when we discuss other religions has been when and where did atheism start? Now, atheism, uh, it comes from a combination of Greek words, atheos, which means not God or, or no God. Um, and, and, and so it's a Greek word, and, and so because of that, you can, you can trace it back to very ancient history, this idea of not worshiping a god or any gods or the right gods. You can see it in the Bible, uh, that blog that I referenced from Chalice in Psalm 14.1. He, uh, the writer of the Bible, not Tim Chalice, says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Then in, in Romans 1, 18 through 32, I'll, I'll read this at length because I, I think it, it gives us a very clear picture of what we're talking about. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's how Paul defines unrighteousness as truth suppression. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator of the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Now, as I read that, I think it's obvious to all of us, this text isn't specifically speaking only to uh, the person who claims there is no God, right? This person is speaking to the one who denies the existence of the one true God. And at the end of the day, that, that really is the, the issue, right? We don't have any problem saying that the gods of Hinduism don't exist. In that sense, we ourselves are, are atheists. Uh, what we have a problem with is not even so much that someone just doesn't think that there is a divine being, but rather that the God of the Bible, the God, the Father of 
Christ, the creator of the universe, he's the one that is being denied and and ignored, the truth about whom is being suppressed. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're getting. That's what's so important here for us to grasp. And, And that's why some of the arguments maybe that you'll find as well against the existence of God often fall short because oftentimes they're, they're against the existence of a deity that maybe comes close to the God we worship but, but is not, in fact, the one true God. Uh, that's one thing that we need to be thinking about, especially as we get to the end of the notes and as we look at some arguments that are brought up to debunk the, the myth of God. Um, we'll see that some of the reasoning behind it is actually based on a, a, an image of God that is not real. So, the point here is that atheism is it's not new. It's been around since God was creating the world. It's been around since he made Adam and Eve. At some point, there was a challenge to the authority of God. We see the serpent. Did God really say this? And, and at its form, at its base, uh, it's not necessarily atheism, but it is a challenge. It's an assault against the very nature of God and who he is. And from that, atheism has, has come, as well as any other religion that does not worship the one true God. So, the Bible talks about it. Uh, incidentally, uh, I guess ironically even, the first so-called atheists, the first people for whom that, that term was used as a description, were Christians, uh, which I, I think is interesting. In, in Roman culture, if you didn't worship the, the Roman pantheon of gods, um, you were considered an atheist because you didn't worship the gods. Or one of the gods, you you were outside of what was acceptable as uh, a deity to be worshipped. You were worshipping the wrong set or the wrong god himself, and and early Christians were actually called atheists. They were the first atheists. Um, In history, though, we see atheism take its more modern form several centuries later. When we get into the 17th and 18th centuries in particular, this is when atheism starts to take shape the way we might think of it today. So uh, as you reach um, the Enlightenment and the, the age of reason, as you may remember from learning in history class, you start to see some of these ideas take shape. It, it begins probably with uh, maybe just a little bit before the Enlightenment with, with a guy named Rene Descartes. He's a guy who's known for saying, um, I think, therefore I am which is an interesting philosophical statement, and, and there are so many things you could talk about with that. But one thing that comes out of it is that the basis of knowledge then, through that statement and other philosophizing that he did, is that, is that knowledge, it starts with man. See, up until that point, knowledge began with God. It began with uh, the church. Whatever the church said, this is what's true. And we know there are problems with that mentality for certain, but up until that point, to say, I, I'm really the source of knowledge, I, I, I determine what is certain or valid, that, that had been in some ways unheard of. So for Rene Descartes to say, I think, therefore I am, is a really bold statement implying that certainty about anything really starts here, not anywhere else, but here and, and, and here in your mind especially, what you think. That's where the Enlightenment really starts to take shape. It, it extrapolates from that idea, that, that reason, logic, thought, 
These are the ways we determine what is true. These are the ways we we decide what is worth uh, following and pursuing and, and what can be thrown aside as myth or silly superstition. In the Age of Enlightenment, you, uh, you find that empirical knowledge and certainty, experience, these things trump emotion, mystery, uh, sensibility, the senses. And, and we see later that, that the pendulum swings the other way through what's called romanticism, where, where logic and reason is sort of swept aside, and, and it's all about how you feel and what you perceive to be going on, but, but for the age of enlightenment, the age of reason, the, mo- the, the mindset is, uh, if you can't prove it through logic and reasoning or through some sort of scientific experiment, it doesn't count. You can't rely on it. You should throw it in the trash because it, it's not reliable. Um, what, what comes of the enlightenment it, directly is not so much atheism. You still have guys who are saying things talking about God, talking about the natural created order. I mean, if you've read any of the founding documents of the United States, you see this. It's self-evident that men are endowed with certain inalienable rights. You you still see this idea of some sort of divine being or divine virtue overseeing what's happening. But, But even then, you do drift away from this biblical idea of a sovereign God intimately involved in the details of every individual's life and the order of the world. Instead, you start to, you see what's called deism become more prominent, which is to say that, that yes, sir, there, there, there is a God, but he's more like a watchmaker. He, he creates the world, winds it up, sets all these laws and systems in place, and then sets it aside and lets it run its course. Rarely does he interfere, if at all. This is why guys like Thomas Jefferson then go to the Bible and they see miracles and resurrection and angels and all these things that cannot be explained by the rational mind and just tears it out and starts over. And if you go to Barnes & Noble, you can find a, a Jefferson Bible and it's missing everything that makes the gospel the gospel, everything that makes Christ who he is. You see all the good things that he did and taught, but but. Those things are at least verifiable. Everything else we can't really prove, so we'll cut that out. This is the mentality that gives rise to that. And, and ultimately then, it, it becomes itself a sort of functional atheism. Because if, if God isn't present in this world, if he's not doing anything to affect the outcome of events, if he's not here and now interacting with your life, if he's not sovereign over all the circumstances you run into and the pain and suffering you experience, if, if he's not here but somewhere else, then why concern yourself with him at all? And I think that's where atheism starts to, to take hold. And it's not very long after that that you start to see more and more prominent philosophers and, uh, and, and thinkers come forth and say, eh, you know, there really probably isn't a God after all. I don't know why we're concerned about this idea anymore. So that, that in particular takes shape in the French Revolution uh, I studied this in college, and I couldn't believe how devoid of any biblical Christian understanding of God the French Revolution was. I mean, just absolutely dehumanizing, which makes sense, because if there's no God, then there's no image of God. And if there's no image of God, then we can't be created in that image. And if you're not created in the image of God, then, 
where is your worth? Where is your value? What, what is the, the total of your existence? And, and so killing one another and blood and all these things, they, they come about in this very heartless, ruthless revolution. I think in a large part because of that, some of the main leaders of the French Revolution were themselves atheists uh, or, or at least uh, didn't really concern themselves much with the existence of God. Um, but, but it starts to take hold in particular in the 19th and 20th centuries uh, with different thinkers. There, there are so many to discuss, so many to talk about, all of them with their pros and cons about various different things. But when it comes to thought about the existence of God, there are some names that you're probably familiar with that I'll just elaborate on as we go. One is Karl Marx. You, you've probably heard of him. He's, you know, the, the founder of Marxism and all that, the, the scourge of, of society. Uh, but at any rate, Karl Marx, he, he himself was, was atheistic. He, he did not believe that there was a God. And, and so his philosophy took a, a tangent from that point. You know, I mentioned earlier, one thing that's difficult about atheism, to ca- it's, it's hard to categorize things. Because you, you just start with this one premise, and you can go any direction from there that seems logically reasonable to you. Well, for Karl Marx, his conclusion was, if there is no God, if God isn't running anything, what is? What drives the world? And his, his response was money, the economy, the values of various things and of people. This is what drives the world. This is what motivates people to do what they do. This is what causes world events to happen as they do. It's all about money. You see guys like uh, Friedrich Nietzsche say, I don't know if it's money. I think it's power, the will to power. This, this is what drives humanity. This is what causes religions to exist in the first place, is that certain people with certain secret knowledge and efforts to exert power and influence on others claim that there is a God who is worthy of their worship, and here's how you can worship him. And if you don't worship him this way, then then it all falls apart and your life will be horrible. His claim was that power is what drove things. Nietzsche famously or infamously, depending on how you look at it, is the one who said God is dead. That's where we get that, that quote. Sigmund Freud uh, is, is in a similar sort of vein. His, his response was, it's not money, it's not power. In fact, it is actually sex. Uh, I won't elaborate on that, but he felt like that's what the driving force behind humanity, behind the world's events, behind everything is it's not God. It has to be something. It's going to be this. Be- you see what I'm, where I'm going with this, I guess, is, is that once you start to remove God from, from the picture and you start to eliminate God as, an, as a possibility for the reason behind anything's existence or the, the rationale for why you should act or behave a certain way or not, once you remove God, once you justify in your mind that there is no God or that God is dead, you morph into to whatever else sort of fills your thoughts. And so you see a whole host of uh, isms that, that come about as a result. Um, existentialism, which is um, hard to define, but, it, but essentially it's this idea that, that we exist. There's not really a whole lot of rhyme or reason to this, to this life. Uh, a lot of things happen that are simply just absurd. Maybe you've read a... Um, a story, maybe you remember this, really, it's a really traumatizing story now that I think about it, but it's written by a guy named Franz Kafka, 
probably heard that people talk about, oh, that's really Kafka-esque, and they don't really know what it means. Okay, so they're talking about this guy, Franz Kafka, who wrote a short story in which this guy wakes up and finds out slowly through the story that he himself is a cockroach. This is existentialism. It's bizarre. It's absurd. You wake up and, and you don't know what's happening. You're thrown into the world. Your eyes open. You don't know what anything means or is, and, and this is life. Other things come about uh, secular humanism. The idea that humanity is, uh, is really, this is all there is, this is what's most important, and we need to cultivate humanity, human learning, reason. Uh, nihilism. Uh, there, there really is nothing of any sort of objective worth or value. Rationalism. If you can't rationalize, if you can't think it through, if it doesn't flow logically, it's not, it's not worth anything. It's, it's certainly not worth giving your life for. Even feminism actually comes from uh, atheistic viewpoints. And, and, and it all flows from this idea that if there is no God, then what's going to fill that void? What's going to fill that vacuum in human thought? And while many would like to say that they're being rational and reasonable to, to deduce that there must be no God at the same time, sometimes that can then lead them to rationalize that maybe something else is the driving force behind the world. And, and in effect, that becomes their God. That becomes their idol. They're in no different position than anyone else just because it's not actually a traditional historical God. One thing also that comes out of this toward the end of the 20th century is, is state atheism. Atheism that is supported by the state. In 1967, the first nation state to do this was Albania, where they, they outlawed all other religions, and atheism itself became the state religion for Albania. And you see this happen in a lot of other countries. You, you can think of, uh, I guess, the USSR and, and, and China and all these other places that historically have been led by atheist leaders. They, they, they tend to outlaw other religions. What about atheism today? It would be the second question, and, and just looking at these statistics, I won't read all of them for you, but I don't think any of these things are, are really necessarily a surprise to us, that China would be 47% atheistic today. And these stats, by the way, they come from the Gospel Coalition. They put together a, a helpful little fact sheet uh, about atheism in the last few weeks or months, I think. Japan, 31% atheistic. Even Ireland, which... I think a lot of us tend to think of as Catholic, Protestant, uh, and that's probably 90% true based on this number, but 10% atheistic. Uh, in America, uh, you'll find that 67% of atheists or self-identified atheists are male. 38% of self-identified atheists are between the ages of 18 and 29. So your average American atheist is a younger man. Is, is what we're getting from that. Certainly there are women, certainly there are older and younger people than, than those ages represented. But, but, but I find that interesting. In, in my experience, and now maybe it's because I tend to associate with more men than women, but in my experience, most of the atheists that I've met are, are men and, and younger men at that. Um, certainly in college, that was what I saw. Uh, it's interesting too, though, when we talk about atheists, and agnostic, and so forth, um, we do have to, to define things a little bit. 
one of the statistics that I ran across was that 14% of self-identified atheists also consider themselves believers in God. So I found odd, and I, I kept having to reread that, thinking, surely I misread that. That can't be what it is. Uh, 7% of Americans are, uh, consider themselves non-believers, but only 2.4% of Americans consider themselves atheists. You do the math. That doesn't make sense to me. But I think it goes to show that when we talk about atheism and defining it, it, it actually is very hard to do. And some people don't want to self-identify as atheists. Some choose to, to, um, to, to ignore the question altogether, or some consider themselves something else. I'm just irreligious. I'm not really sure. I'm agnostic, so forth. But, but I think these, these numbers are interesting. And another thing about atheism today is a lot of it has been influenced increasingly by what's called new atheism. You've probably seen a lot of books and angry rants posted online by people who are against the so-called new atheists. These would include men like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, who have written scathing books against Christianity in particular, but against the idea of God in general. And, and that's, starting, that, that's something, I guess, that's been a bit different over the last few decades in terms of the face of atheism, is this very militant, aggressive sort of refutation, a positive assertion, there is no God, and, and actually trying to win disciples to that idea. What are the sacred writings of atheism? Question number three. Um, that's an obvious question. I only ask it because it was on the outline from before for other religions we've talked about. But I think it's actually helpful to think about in terms of as well. What are the sacred writings? Well, okay, there, obviously there are no sacred writings as such. Uh, but there are folks who have thought directly about atheism or, or spoken directly to the non-existence of God. And, and then there are also those who, who are influenced by that thinking and have wrote, written about other things as well. So you might think in terms of yesterday, yesterday's philosophers about Nietzsche, Marx, Freud. Uh, you could also think about Immanuel Kant, David Hume, and Bertrand Russell. These are names that uh, they're very influential when it comes to uh, the, the idea and the philosophy behind atheism, atheistic thinking. Today, you run into guys, like I mentioned, of new atheists, uh, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett. I think Christopher Hitchens actually recently died in the last few years. Um, and, and if you look, you can find um, a, a very interesting uh, documentary done between a pastor from Idaho named Douglas Wilson, who has an incredible beard, and, uh, and, and Christopher Hitchens. They did this really great back-and-forth documentary where they, they debated one another in public, but also in these small little video segments. Really interesting and, and helpful, though Douglas Wilson has some odd fringe ideas too. So anyway, I uh, just had to throw that in there. So not a whole lot of sacred writings, but you, you get the idea. And just like everyone has, they have their authors, they have their writers, they have the blogs that they follow, the people they, they check out on Twitter. We all have this, and, and, and atheists are no different. They, they have their people, their voices that they, they listen to and think are reputable and respectable. And, and uh, that's something to consider as well as you engage with people who are atheistic or agnostic. What do atheists believe about God? This, again, is also an obvious question. Uh, there are no divine beings. But it, it can come in different forms. There's positive atheism, or strong atheism, I think, as it's also known, which, which asserts positively there is no God. A lot of the new atheists would fall in that vein, certainly. 
Uh, but, but it's much more leaning forward on the offensive. There is no God. Let me tell you that there is no God. I can prove to you that there is no God. You also have what's called negative atheism by some, which is not necessarily as upfront saying there is no God, but rather, I do not believe in a deity. And you see the difference there, I hope. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't believe in one. And it's not necessarily going out proselytizing about this idea. It's not necessarily trying to defend or refute other ideas. Rather, it's a simple declaration that I lack belief in God that, that others might have. That's been my experience with a lot of the atheists that I've met. Um, it's not so much that they're, they're militantly against Christianity or the existence of God, though maybe if you press them, they would, they would give you some idea of that, but, but rather that they're just not concerned with the existence of God. And, and in fact, if you press them, they'll say, no, I don't think there is one. And they're okay with the fact that I think there is. They probably think I'm wrong, but they're, but they're fine with it. I know that others exist who are maybe more militant than that, but, but that's been my experience. And maybe, maybe it's been your experience as well. But that's what I'm getting at when I talk about positive atheism and negative atheism. Uh, what do atheists believe about the purpose of life and salvation? This question, if there's no God, is there really a need to be saved from, I mean, from what? You know, I mean, that seems like a silly question. Uh, but at the same time, like I said, you, you remove God from the equation and something fills that space. A lot of times, if you ask maybe the, the atheist feminist, she would say, well, salvation looks like, or she wouldn't say necessarily that it looks like this, but, but the reality is that salvation for her would be uh, a world in which uh, women are, are held in higher esteem than she thinks that they are being held in. Um, uh, for, for Nietzsche, then, salvation and life comes from having power. For Marx, it has to do with money. You see, it, it, we, we fill the void. So, so life and the purpose of life, what, what can we be saved from? It, it looks different for everybody, even, even among Christians or people who profess to believe in a God or any God. It, it looks different from person to person. We, we, as Christians, believe then that the purpose of life is to glorify God by knowing him and enjoying him. So that's what we would say, and we would put all our energy and effort into that. That's the purpose of life. That, that is what salvation looks like, and it's brought about by grace through faith. Others would disagree, however. So, what are some of the distinctive practices of atheism? Um, oftentimes, it's actually syncretistic, which, which is to say that it combines with other religious systems and beliefs. It's not uncommon to hear, for example, of the atheistic Jew. How can that be? Well, maybe traditionally, historically, culturally, they, they affiliate with Judaism. They celebrate Hanukkah. They even go to the, go to the temple. Uh, or the synagogue, but, but they don't believe that there is a, an actual God. I, I had a Hebrew professor in college who I believe was, was an atheistic Jew. I don't think he believed that there was a God, but, but he was so Jewish. That's how he'd been brought up. That's what he knew. That's what he loved. He loved the history of it, the, the, the tradition behind it, the resonance that he had with it just personally. And, uh, and, and that's where he landed. A lot of Hindus and Buddhists are, are atheists. It's not uncommon. But some of these things are, are obvious, and, and so there are no necessarily distinctive practices. There are no ways they worship or don't worship. or uh, There's none of that, right? But, but rather, uh, you can find atheists who are passive about it and aggressive about it. You can find atheists who are kind, genuinely kind, considerate people. Um, one of my favorite teachers through, through school was, was an atheist, and, and probably 
one of the kindest people I've met. Now, his motivations may be wrong, uh, whether he would admit it or not. He, he may be doing it really for himself or how he feels. He could be very self-centered and not even know it. Nevertheless, I, I felt like in a lot of ways, he was probably better at looking like and being a Christian than some of my Christian friends in school. Uh, and yet he was, he was an atheist. Some can be cruel and, and inconsiderate and hateful and spiteful. Some can be tolerant. Some can be intolerant. Some can be rational, and, and, and this is, I'm, I'm convinced of this. Some can be very emotionally driven. You know, I'm not a believer in any sort of God because any God that would let me experience what I've experienced in my life, I don't want to follow and, and can't exist. Uh, there was an interesting article posted in the last few uh, weeks from in the Atlantic that was in summarized, thankfully, uh, by uh, uh, another man named David Murray, who is a, a Christian, who uh, found the article really helpful and informative. And, and he summarized some of the findings and the research that had been uncovered in this article. He, he said that many atheists have attended church. Many of them had a background in, in church, um, but chose atheism as a reaction to that. Many of them found that the mission and message of their churches was vague. Not focused on the gospel at all, but just generally uh, about doing good or, or this, that, or the other. They felt that their churches offered superficial answers to life's difficult questions. They expressed their respect for those ministers who actually did take the Bible seriously. Uh, thinking, you know, hey, if you actually believe this, I'm glad that you're warning me against hell. Because that would seem very important if that's something you believe. They expressed their respect for them. Uh, ages 14 through 17... It turns out, but based on this research, we're very decisive. Most embraced unbelief in the high school years. The decision to embrace unbelief was often an emotional one, as I alluded to. The internet factored heavily into their conversion to atheism. Instead of being converted through popular authors like Richard Dawkins, most were influenced by YouTube videos and website forums. And access to the internet is so easy. You can look anywhere. Just type in, is there a God, and, which is what I did, and, and you can find anything. Uh, I, I YouTubed atheism, and I found hundreds, countless, I mean, hundreds of thousands of videos immediately accessible, some really well done, some very foolish looking, that, that uh, explained why there was or was not a God. And, uh, and, and so the internet has become a tool for um, disseminating this information, um, which I, I just thought was, was particularly interesting considering how influential it is. So how do we respond to atheists? And uh, man, we have 14 minutes. Uh, let's see. Most of what we talked about applies. Wayne's talked about these things in the past. Be hospitable. Invite them to your home. Be gender sensitive. Ask questions. Don't, don't assume that you're on the same terms. Uh, what does Christian mean? Let's define this before we go further. Build a relationship. Do talk about Jesus. Uh, even, with, even with the atheists, though you may think that the foundational thing that has to be discussed is the existence of a deity, the reality is we're not, we're not talking about the existence of a deity. We're not, we're not talking about just some higher power. We're talking about the God, the, the one true God. We're, we're talking about Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Uh, don't think that talking about Jesus with an atheist is missing the point. It is the point. We're talking, <laughs> we're talking about God. We want them to worship Christ, not just a generic deity. We're talking about Christ himself. himself. So some things we can do in addition to that. Uh, study apologetics uh, within reason. And that's an in, unintentional play on words. But 
But you, you, there is such a thing as too much apologetics, and, and you can focus all day and too much on all the, the little details and the questions. How do I, exactly do I answer this? And what are the exact scripture references that I need to know to bring this guy down off his throne and usher him into the kingdom of God? That, that's no way to live. You can't, you can't do that. It'll drive you crazy. And, and then at the end of the day, when you find that it's still not enough, you'll be very frustrated and won't know what to do. Um, so yeah, be smart, study, read books by Tim Keller and, and, and check out Ravi Zacharias's ministry. Those are helpful places to go for apologetic resources. But, uh, but at the same time, um, I, I think it, it, speaking and reasoning with atheists, uh, it also requires fighting fire, so to speak, with Scripture. And, and some debate that and think that starting with the Bible and using scriptural references to, to discuss the existence of God with somebody who doesn't believe that the Bible is even the word of a non-existent God is silly. But again, the, the word, it's the word of God for the power of salvation to all who believe. Let's not be naive and kid ourselves about this as if the word of God is somehow, it cannot penetrate the mind of the one hardened against the existence of God. The Word of God can penetrate the hearts of people hardened against God's law, fully aware that He exists, and yet complete rebel, completely rebelling against Him. If, if the Word of God can do that, surely it can break through this idea that God does not exist. I would think that would actually be a little bit easier for God to accomplish in a worldly sense. Um, pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, you, you get the picture. Don't rely so much on your own reasoning and ability and thought. There are plenty of smarter people out there than you. There are smarter atheists than you. There are people who have given more thought to this than you ever will. And that's okay. Don't reinvent the wheel. Find the folks who've thought about it. Use their ideas and thoughts and bring them to light. But at the end of the day, the Lord is the best apologist for his cause, right? And so we can't rely too much on ourselves. We have to lean on the Lord and his grace, which has saved us and we know can save others. Um, also, consider the nature of faith. It's not blind optimism, as many proponents of atheism would believe, but, but rather it's confidence. It's based on reality. There's a reason why the gospel writers don't just leave their books at mere sentences saying, Jesus died for your sins, believe in him and you'll be fine. They wrote a lot more than that, as I'm sure you're aware and a lot of it was time spent elaborating on and justifying the existence of Christ in the first place. Christianity is very reasonable and, and rational. Some might fight against that. Uh, even Christians might fight against that idea. But, but the reality is, when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the reality of how things are. We're, we're talking about what God has spoken. And if God says it, what is more rational, what's more justified to believe than what God has spoken if he exists? So, so let's be realistic. Faith is not blind hope. It's not optimism against all odds. It, it is a reasoned response to what God has done and what we, we know, therefore, God can and will do in the future. It's hope in future grace based on the reality of past grace. It would also help us to be aware of uh, some key questions and concepts. You'll find that this list gets rather daunting. Uh, some of this you may want to YouTube or, or uh, Wikipedia search later. Some things that, that often come up, things like Pascal's wager. Blaise Pascal was a Christian who 
theorize essentially this. Okay, if you don't believe that there's a God, fine, but, but let's, let's talk about this. Let's say you do believe in a God and you're wrong. You haven't lost anything um, over the person who doesn't believe in God in the first place. But let's say you don't believe in God and, and you're wrong. You, you'd be wagering everything. So why not believe in God? Is his argument. And some find that really persuasive. I, I mean, I get it, but, but for me, I, I think that's kind of missing the point. I mean, we're not just talking about sort of, well, you know what? I guess I'd rather be on the right side of history, so uh, well, I'll take my chances there and flip the coin. I mean, that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Faith in God is so much more than that. Uh, I don't know if God really honors that as faith, in fact. We're talking about personal hope in Jesus Christ and his work of salvation and redemption. There, there's more to it than the flip of a coin. Well, let's see. Maybe, maybe it's more efficient to side with faith. I, I, I don't buy it, but, but that is an argument. At the same time, you also have what's called the atheist wager, which I think is a really witty response to it, which is simply, hey, you know what? If you live a good life and don't believe in a benevolent God, then you know what? If he's a benevolent God, he'll save you anyway. Now, I I would dispute that God's benevolence means that he unconditionally saves everybody based on how they've lived. But nevertheless, that's that's called the atheist wager, and it's uh, it's a response that's often brought to bear on that. There's there's another argument called the ontological argument, which is brought up by a guy named Anselm of Canterbury. I I also think this is kind of silly, but it goes something like this, that if you can think of the greatest being in existence— just imagine the greatest being, then surely the greatest being is not just imaginary, but actually exists, right? Existence is greater than non-existence, right? So if you can imagine a being that there is nothing greater than, then that being has to exist and, and therefore God exists. That's, that's his reasoning. I, it's confusing to me and it doesn't make sense. And I, I think a lot of people have debunked that one too, but but those are things that come up in these sort of discussions. I, I ultimately like John Calvin and the way he 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 tackles it. And he just says, look, there's a sense in all of us that, that God exists and is real. And this is what Paul says in Romans 1. John Calvin's not saying anything new here, but, but he, does, uh, he does have a good point. He, he says, there exists in the human mind and indeed by natural instinct some sense of deity. We hold this to be beyond dispute since God himself, to prevent any man from pretending ignorance, has endued all men with some idea of his Godhead. Um, let's, let's look at a few questions uh, down below that, that often come up in, in discussions about the existence of God. Uh, one question is, how can a good God exist alongside pain and suffering? This is often called theodicy. Uh, the problem of pain, of evil, is sometimes how it's brought up. How can a good God exist alongside pain and suffering? Uh, and, and that's a very strong argument, especially if you've experienced serious pain and suffering. If God really loved me, why would he allow me to go through that experience? Why would he allow me to, to experience this catastrophic event or, 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 or the death of a loved one? Why would this happen to me? If, if God was truly loving, surely everything would work for good. Um, that's a very strong argument, especially if you've experienced that. But, but it assumes that, that a loving God has no purpose behind pain and suffering. It assumes that God's love is incompatible with bad things happening. We don't know. I mean, why, why should that be true? 
could be any number of reasons that we can't possibly understand why God would allow pain and suffering. I would say it certainly is ultimately for his glory, for, for the good of those who love him, as we've talked about in Romans 8. Uh, but, but even for the person who doesn't buy any of that, uh, like if you walk into a tent and, and you're looking for a St. Bernard, you'll know if there's a St. Bernard or not. Okay? But, but if, if you walk into a tent looking for a noceum, how do you know if it's there? You can't determine. Now, eventually you're going to get bit. It's going to hurt. But, but if you walk in and you're looking for that, you, it, no one sees them, right? And, and so um, it's a similar case here. It's because you can't necessarily see the reasoning behind why God would allow something to happen and how that can be compatible with his love. That, that doesn't negate it. It doesn't mean that there is no reason. Um, certainly more could be said about that. And, and if you have Tim Keller's book, the reason for God, he, he elaborates on that fully. Uh, how could there be a God? How could Christianity be true with so much evil done in the name of God? Again, that, that's, a, that's a strong question to ask. And a lot of Christians have no answer for that. Um, but in part, we know that the people of God are not perfect. Certainly the people of God, many of them uh, are, are still wrestling with sin. All of them are, Right? Uh, and we know that among people who claim to be the people of God, there are many wolves who actually, in fact, do not worship God and, and do worship themselves and do still live according to the flesh and so forth. We know that there have been whole movements, such as the Crusades, things of that nature, that are a great stain on the so-called church. But that doesn't negate the existence of God. It just negates the existence of a perfect, benevolent church throughout history. Um, if there's an omniscient, omnipotent, and perfect divine being, wouldn't it or he or she have created other morally perfect beings instead of imperfect ones like we see around us? It's an interesting question. Um, and we would certainly say, well, well, what about sin? What about the fall? How has that marred us? And even our own reasoning and logic, couldn't that have been affected negatively by by sin, even now, are we sinfully assuming things about God that are not true but maybe seem reasonable to us? Aren't God's supposed properties incompatible? For example, God's love and wrath. You say God is a God of love, but he also has wrath. How, is, how can the two live in the same being? How, how can that be? Surely that God does not exist. We know that love can produce wrath, right? If, if, if your wife or spouse or child been picked on or uh, offended in some way because you love them, you, you would also then sense a certain amount of wrath toward those who offend them, but, but also even for those who uh, you feel wrathful toward, can't that also be motivated by a love for them that they would not seek their own self-destruction? Uh, can't you also be loving towards someone by, by punishing and even disciplining them to protect them for their own good? Certainly that's true. I feel so silly going through these because I know I'm giving very simplistic answers, but just to give you an idea of, of the direction a lot of these things go. Uh, how can a loving God exist while so many do not know of him? Sometimes this comes about on the idea of the innocent tribesman in Africa who's never heard the gospel. How can there be a God if such a person exists, the innocent tribesman in Africa? And, and, and of course, the, the answer to that is that there is no innocent tribesman in Africa, that we all alike have sinned. And if Romans 1 is right... I know that God has stamped his image across the universe and the things that have been made and, and the way things work. And, 
Even despite the fall, we should have some idea of this truth. Um, we know, too, kind of going back to the existence of evil, that there are maybe reasons for things that we can't understand. It doesn't necessarily negate the existence of God. Um, why would an omnipotent and omniscient being create anything at all, let alone people? I, I had never really heard this reasoning before until I found it online. Um, what need does he have to create anybody? You know, why are you looking for a God if you exist, in, the, in, in other words, you know? I think that's a good question. A, a single solo monetary, uh, uh, monetary uh, sort of um, uh, solo God has no need for other people, right? Why would he reach outside of himself? Um, but the beauty is that our God is not just one person. He's actually three. I don't know if I'd bring that up with an atheist. Uh, but, but at any rate, our God is he's triune. He's three in one. He, he is the essence of community. He is the essence of love, and why shouldn't that love overflow into the creation of people like us? Imperfect, but, but the recipients of his love and grace, which he has shared between the Father, Son, and Spirit through all eternity. Why shouldn't that be the case? Um, surely that God would, would inevitably uh, overflow his love uh, in, in creation of mankind, mercifully, graciously, undeservedly, but, but nonetheless, truthfully. Uh, how can you be sure your revelation of God is superior to that of others? How can you be sure? We know that, for one, the Bible is distinct from other religious systems and beliefs. We know that there are truths presented through the gospel that directly contradict other religious systems and beliefs, uh, or the absence of beliefs and systems, right? We, we know this to be true. We've talked about this in, the, in recent weeks, and and certainly part of the answer to that is simply by faith. Don't, don't discount that. That's not necessarily a cop-out. But ultimately, we, we see in Christ the validity that we don't see anywhere else. Uh, we see reason and logic where we maybe don't see it in other places. Um, that, that actually is a, a pretty big can of worms worth uh, exploring more. Um, how about this? Um, don't you only believe in God because you were born in a Christian conservative family? I've heard that one uh, posed to me before, too. and um, It sounds strong, you know. I mean, if you were born in India, you'd be a Hindu. You would worship that, the, any one of those particular gods. If, if, if you were born uh, in Israel, you'd probably be Jewish and, and wouldn't buy into the Messiah. So, you know, how can you really be sure that your God is right, let alone that he exists? And while this doesn't necessarily answer the question, it, it does help to, to sort of debunk the logic of it by posing the question to the, to the atheist. How, how, do you, how do you know that your environment didn't influence you to be an atheist? Uh, if you were born in, in, in India, you, you yourself would not believe that there is no God necessarily. Uh, and, and so that, that question isn't really a helpful one to pose to anybody because the reality is, especially for the Christian, we know that, that the Lord, he, he does superintend all things. And surely he uses the fact that I was born to a, a, a white Christian conservative family as the means of bringing me to faith, whereas anywhere else I might not have become a Christian. But, but nevertheless, as a way of debunking the, the myth of God, it's just not helpful. Finally, here are some questions that you can ask atheistic friends, neighbors, and coworkers. Um, 
look, none of these questions are gotcha questions. None of these questions are the silver bullet that'll bring it home and, and send them on to glory. I mean, that's not the case, right? Let's be realistic here. Like I said before, there, there are some things that are more important than apologetic questions. Prayer, the gospel, Jesus, his work, his grace, his power to save. Those things are much more effective and fruitful and certainly can use the questions we might ask and the conversations we might have to those ends. But here are some questions, nevertheless, that you might find helpful. One of them is, doesn't it take more faith, actually, to believe this world came from nothing than to believe God exists and created it? And there are all sorts of counterpoints to that 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 can and inevitably would be brought up. How do you know God himself wasn't created? Shouldn't he have a creator? Things like that. But but the point being that, that this world cannot be all that there is. Surely this didn't just come out of nowhere. The way things are so perfectly fine-tuned, the way things have so perfectly fit into place, surely there is some intelligence that has influenced and informed what has taken place around us, the existence of all that is. That doesn't even really prove the existence of the God of the Bible, but but it does get the wheels turning to think maybe, well, I don't know if I can go to creation as a way of completely writing God off. How can you be sure of your own logic, reason, science, etc.? I think this is a really strong question to ask because it, it applies this. You know, normally, the person who rejects God and, and positively asserts that there is no God says that, based on reason, I know this. Based on empirical evidence, I can prove this to you. And you say, well, then why do people believe in God? Why, why do people do what they do? Why, why, why do we have this sense of what's moral or good or just? And, well, this is... This is hormones, it's nerve endings firing off. It's different things happening chemically in the brain that cause us to be this way. And at that point, then you can say, well, then how, how do you know your logic isn't the result of that as well? How do you know your reasoning and rationale isn't also influenced by the nerve endings and synapses firing off in your mind? How, how do you know that your logic isn't also influenced by uh, an overdose of caffeine in your system, right? How do you know? How do you know? You can't know without any shadow of a doubt. And, and, and so to claim that I'm supposed to is, is really, uh, it's, it's a bit unfair. Uh, the, the problem of good as opposed to the problem of evil. I, I, was, um, I stumbled across this this week too. Ravi Zacharias, he, he was interviewed and asked, what is the most difficult question for the atheist? What's the most difficult question for the Christian to grapple with? And he said, well, for the Christian, certainly the question of the problem of evil. Why does evil exist? How can there be a loving, good, benevolent, omnipotent, omniscient God if evil also exists? And we've talked about that, and there's certainly more that can be said. said. Uh, but, but Ravi also then points out the question for the atheist that would be most difficult to answer is, you know, how, how, where does your notion of good even come from? You're telling me that evil exists, but how do you know it's evil? Where, where, what's the basis for that? Is it you? Are you, are you really claiming that you know, independent of anything else, what is good or evil or morally right or reprehensible? How do you know this? That's a question that the atheist has to wrestle with. It's a question that we all have to wrestle with. This idea that good exists in our minds or in reality one way or another, where does that come from? I would say God instills that in all of us, that part of that is just our conscience, part of it is his common grace to the world to keep us from blowing each other up constantly and, and ending this thing on day one, right? But that's a question to ask. And, 
Finally, uh, another question, sort of along the same lines. How, how do you explain concepts like beauty? I mean, what, what is it about a certain song or melody that causes your heart to stir? I don't mean that in a kitschy sort of you know, sentimental way. I, I mean, really, when, when you listen to certain music, what, what causes your heart to swell as you listen to that? What, what, what makes you say, oh, that's beautiful, but ooh, that's not, that's, that's trash, right? What, what brings that about? Where do you get your notion of what is beautiful? What's, what's so uh, uh, drawing about it uh, the, to you? These are questions that we can ask, and, and, and certainly as a Christian, I have answers to these things myself. And, but these are not questions, like I said, that are silver bullets. They're questions that are meant to engage in direct conversation in a way that that points to something greater than just this material world and the existence of, of the human race, but rather, surely there, there, there is a God who, who can provide us with an idea of the answers to these things, and I, and I think that that God is himself very rational and realistic as well. So that's more than, uh, than you had time for. Let me pray for us, and, um, and, and we'll, we'll be done. And, and if you have questions and would like to talk a little bit more after that, I'm not going to hold anyone back. Uh, you can, you're free to go, but you can, I'll stay up here and you can come. We can, we can talk a little bit. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we do thank you for, for your uh, wisdom, for your uh, grace to us, to give us minds to think, to reason through things, to consider options and weigh uh, true and false. And We know that we're sinful and uh, we know that we are fallen. Uh, We know that our inclination is to suppress the truth, as Paul says. Uh, Specifically, to suppress the truth that that you are who you are, that that you do have mercy and grace toward those uh, whom you love. And so, I pray that we wouldn't suppress that truth for ourselves. We'd embrace you uh, for who you are. I pray that we wouldn't suppress that truth for others as well, though, with the way we act, the way we live. There is a way to be atheistic and claim to believe in God by just living as if there isn't a God. Um, living as if what he says doesn't matter. And, and all of us at various times have been guilty of that very thing. And so I pray that um, you would cause our lives to be one of the strongest apologetics against the absence of God that there is. Uh, not that we're smart and, and witty but rather that you are pleased to use the weak and foolish things of this world to shame the strong. If, if, if there is anything that goes against what is reasonable and rational to expect, certainly that, and, and we know that you delight in it. And so I pray that uh, we would be examples of humility and of love, that we would consider those especially who do not believe that you even exist, let alone that you love them. Pray that we would be gracious and humble in our response and in uh, how we approach them. Pray that we point them to Jesus, not to ourselves or to other men or to rationale and lines of thought, but, but to you, to the Savior who calls us to turn from ourselves and our own foolish understanding and to turn toward what is truly wisdom, uh, which is Jesus and him crucified. And so we thank you for this time together. Pray that it would be fruitful for us beyond tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.